Can you hear me? Can we not hear Nate now? Wait, I'm, I'm here. We can yeah. hear Nate. We cannot hear you now, Nate. Testing one, two. Weird. Gala, it's your fault. Happy, happy Monday. We are off to the exact kind of start that a Monday deserves. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the 538 Politics Podcast. I'm Galen Druk. Oftentimes when we talk about American politics, we place voters and politicians on a left-right spectrum from liberal to conservative. But people's feelings about politics can be more complicated than that. So today we're gonna dig into a new survey that categorizes voters into at least four quadrants and tries to imagine what it would be like if America were a multi-party democracy. We're also going to ask how much voters care about foreign policy as President Biden charts his administration's path abroad. Biden is withdrawing all American troops from Afghanistan as the Taliban gains territory and is now weighing how to address instability in both Cuba and Haiti much closer to home. And finally, we'll check in on infrastructure and the Democrats' budget plan. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer is pushing for an initial procedural vote on the bipartisan infrastructure plan on Wednesday of this week. So we'll see how that's all going to shake out. And here with me to do that, our Editor-in-Chief, Nate Silver. Hello, Nate. Hey, everybody. How's it going? Good to see you on the East Coast. Made it back from Las Vegas in one piece. In at least one piece. In at least one piece. Okay. Also with us is Politics Editor Sarah Frostenson. Hello, Sarah. Happy Monday. Happy Monday. And also here with us is Kristen Soltis Anderson. She's a pollster and co-founder of the Republican polling firm Echelon Insights. Welcome back to the show, Kristen. Oh, thanks for having me. It's good to have you. So let's kick things off with the survey on multi-party democracy that I mentioned. And Kristen, your firm actually conducted this survey, so we're very interested to hear your thoughts. So just to set the scene a little bit, you asked 1,000 registered voters to answer whether they agree with the left or right position on a number of economic and cultural issues. And then you charted those responses in four quadrants as a kind of matrix. So respondents could be economically and culturally conservative, economically and culturally liberal, or a mix of the two. What did you find? How do Americans fit into those four quadrants and the spectrum between the four quadrants themselves? Sure. So Americans, we, we talk a lot about the country being very polarized. And I think the traditional way of thinking about that is that you have a lot of people who all hold very conservative views and you'd have a lot of people who all hold progressive views. And what we find when we actually ask people about individual policy items is that there are a lot of people that hold a mix. They hold some conservative views and some liberal views and that it spans a kind of a wide spectrum. And we also find that there are about one in five Americans, I would say, don't neatly fit into either a kind of conservative or progressive bucket on both axes. We have about 14% of people in our study who wind up being pretty culturally conservative, but also being relatively economically progressive. They're comfortable with a big role for government, increased taxes, and so on. And then you find about 6% in this kind of socially progressive but fiscally conservative camp. And I always love to break the hearts of business leaders and CEOs if I'm ever giving a talk about the American electorate, because I think that's a view that's very overrepresented in things like the business community, but is not necessarily as represented in the electorate when we ask about individual policy issues. And so when we think of traditional liberals and conservatives, 
that's the remainder, of course, of the like 80 percent of voters. Do they split up pretty evenly or where do they come down? So we find about 42 percent of people land in the conservative quadrant on both economic and cultural issues. They wind up in that piece of our chart. And then another 39% we call liberals. On both economic and cultural issues, they tend to be more progressive. Now, of course, there are folks that, you know, are very close to sort of the center of our chart. You know, they're relatively moderate, but we wind up classifying them in one or other of those buckets. And so we find even when we're looking at folks that are strong conservatives or strong liberals, that winds up being an even smaller subset. Only 16% of voters in our analysis, are strong conservatives. They're pretty far out there. Their score is sort of 75 to 100 on both economic and social conservatism. And similarly, only 13% are kind of strong liberals. They have that 0 to 25% economic score or social score. Nate and Sarah, I want to get your thoughts on reading through the results of the survey, because it's really notable when you look at how voters responded to different economic and cultural questions. You'll see that, for example, a slim plurality said that they would rather have a smaller government that provides fewer services. But then a majority said that it's the responsibility of the federal government to see that everyone has health care coverage. And an even larger majority said that the country should raise taxes on people making over $200,000. Then you go to some of the cultural questions. A majority take the liberal position on abortion and gun control and the conservative position on immigration, policing and nationalism. We often talk about politics again, on that left-right spectrum. So what should we make of the fact that actually the majorities lie in a more idiosyncratic path or whatever category? I'm probably a little bit spicy on this issue because I think that the ideological polls are not very coherent themselves. I think liberalism or conservatism in America is kind of a mishmash of different types of philosophy, different types of self-interest, different types of groupthink and different types of things that for arbitrary cultural reasons get kind of squashed and smushed together. And so I tend to think someone is probably has more, in a sense, mature <laughs> political views if they are a bit more heterodox. I don't think partisans recognize how much they're not really deriving views from like first principles, but because of partisanship. And I think it's probably even more so in a time when elites themselves are more partisan. I mean, highly educated elites are overwhelmingly democratic liberals at this point. So yeah, I'm going to be spicy here and kind of reject the premise that, oh, these everyday Americans have incoherent views because they're pro-gun, but pro-abortion rights. Oh, I wouldn't say that they're incoherent. I just say it's notable. It's notable, right? But I think elites could do a better job of recognizing how unusual they are in having, and again, I'm not going to describe their views as coherent, in having views where they take the polarized view of every issue including things like COVID, where I don't think people had strong priors about how COVID policy maps onto the kind of left-right axes, but all of a sudden, liberals are very pro-mask and pro-lockdown and conservatives are anti-vaccine or whatever else, when historically there hadn't necessarily been those connotations. I think anytime you ask respondents a variety of cultural questions, it really is interesting how idiosyncrasies emerge in terms of how voters think about abortion versus immigration. But at the same time, I think, you know, what Nate's getting at there a little is we are so partisan in terms of how elected leaders talk about a lot of these issues that I wonder to what extent answering XYZ on 
whatever issue it is, if it's not the top issue on which you vote, does that really help me understand a lot of whether you identify as Democrat or Republican? I mean, we did a story a while back where it was the cultural axis was just immigration, because that tends to be very hard-lined. You're either pro or against. Does that trump, though, how a respondent feels about transgender athletes playing with the team they identify? Does that trump someone's stance on abortion? It's complicated in terms of what is the overarching factor then that's driving someone's politics, even if they really do hold like a wide array of beliefs. I think this is probably a tricky question, but are you able to discern amongst people who hold idiosyncratic views, which even people who fall into the liberal or conservative quadrant that you looked at, still hold idiosyncratic views to some extent, what makes them identify with one party or the other in the end? So we tend to think it's more likely these social and cultural issues. When we look at the partisan identification of folks in the conservative quadrant, unsurprisingly, three quarters of them are Republican. And when we look at those in the the progressive quadrant, unsurprisingly, 80% consider themselves to be Democrats or they lean toward the Democratic Party. When you look at the folks that don't fall neatly into those two camps, among those we sort of term the populists, they are more likely to be Republican than Democratic, sort of suggesting even though they have those progressive economic views, they're slightly more more likely to consider themselves Republican. And for the libertarians, that small group that's more socially progressive, they, by an overwhelming margin, um, 58 to 23, consider themselves more Democrats than Republicans. So that's, I think, just a top-line way of, of reading that the social and cultural issues are probably the bigger drivers behind why someone chooses to identify with one party or the other. Is that new and different? Is that a product of the Trump era or has it always been true? It may be a product of the Trump era. I would have suspected that perhaps 10 years ago when you consistently saw an issue like the economy and jobs at the top of the list of voters' priorities, that perhaps you might have seen economics being a bigger driver. But now, you know, one, when you look at the two parties, what are their top issues? I mean, they're in completely different universes. We we are not living in a moment where everyone agrees the economy is the top issue. We just have to figure out how to deal with it. We're very much in a moment where what people think is the top issue are completely different. So in our study, we then asked, what would you think is the biggest issue facing the country today? Conservatives in the survey say it's jobs and the economy. But for progressives, that's not the top issue. It's healthcare, race relations, the environment, and climate change. And then for conservatives, things like immigration wind up being really high up there on the list. So you can see those cultural issues. And you can even think, I think, about an issue like climate as being kind of one that is linked to identity and culture, almost more than an economic issue, that that seems to be the bigger driver. I was really curious, though, for like the voters that fell into the populist portion of the quadrant. They broke for Clinton in 16, but then shifted towards Trump in 2020. Is it just because their views weren't as baked in as like a strong conservative or a strong liberal? Well, I think, you know, in that case, you had an awful lot of people who said they didn't vote. You're right that of those in our survey who said they voted, Clinton had a slight advantage there, which did surprise me because I've seen other analysis that shows something different. There's another political scientist named Lee Drutman who his work sort of inspired us to want to tackle this. We asked a different set of economic issues. So I think we might be classifying people into slightly different camps. I think his definition of an economic conservative was a little more hardline than ours. I think our graph has shifted a bit as a result. But nevertheless, we find that actually that was the group that had the largest number of people who said they didn't vote in 2016 which to the point of, you know, voter turnout went up so high, Trump didn't win, but certainly a lot of new voters entered the process 
for Donald Trump this time around, I would suspect that's the quadrant that you're getting a lot of those folks from. When you add up all of the cultural conservatives and all of the economic liberals, you actually see that cultural conservatives beat out cultural liberals 56 to 44 percent. And economic liberals beat out economic conservatives 52 to 48 percent. So why don't we actually have a party that is culturally conservative and economically liberal if that's where the majority of voters sit? And maybe beyond just the question of why don't we have a party that represents that, why don't we have more idiosyncratic politicians, period? I think you're beginning to see at least the Republican Party trying to capture that sort of void in the market. I mean, you saw Donald Trump try to do that, that there, especially during the Trump presidency, there was not as much of an appetite for things like deficit reduction. Um, And I think there's still big questions within the party to what extent things like that, that you might have thought of as kind of an economically conservative position that would have been championed during the Bush or even Tea Party era, that that's just sort of less of a priority now. You also see lots of prominent right-of-center voices who are really attacking corporations regularly, sort of viewing that as an underserved political market that they want to reach. I mean, just look at the J.D. Vance strategy in Ohio right now, where he he loves going after corporations and views that as a way to kind of reach this new piece of what had been probably an underserved piece of the electorate that Republicans have viewed as an opportunity to bring into their coalition. I think the reason why you don't see more politicians along these lines is that you still have the center of gravity is this more conservative, conservative, progressive, progressive group. I mean, most people do fall into one of those more traditional quadrants. And then whether it's through the fact that people have to survive party primaries, single member districts, you know, there's a whole variety of structural things that have led the Congress to be much more ideologically polarized, where the electorate, you have people along a much wider spectrum of, as we call them, idiosyncratic viewpoints. I think elites have a lot of power in the American political system. And because elites do fall into this, I guess you call it like Acela, people who are socially liberal, economically neoliberal, maybe not quite conservative. Elites have a lot of influence, and so therefore they tend to push things toward their view, even if it's like not a particularly popular view of the electorate as a whole. Because you saw in 2016, both Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump, in their own way, were kind of touching upon the fringes of this economically liberal but socially conservative group. People may forget now, but like Bernie Sanders actually in 2016 did pretty well among Democrats who call themselves conservative, you know, in West Virginia, for example. Part of that is because Bernie Sanders was running against Hillary Clinton, who was demonized for her gender, her history in office, and many other reasons as being a liberal. But like also Bernie kind of shifted that strategy. He received a lot of pushback for being not as gung-ho about liberal immigration policies and about gun control as your typical progressive Democrat might be. He also received some pushback forwarding the argument that maybe not him himself, but coming from his camp, that actually class and not race is a principal divide in America And so his coalition was both more moderate and more white in 2016 than it was in 2020, where it was more culturally mixed, but also more liberal. And Joe Biden was winning the West Virginias and whatnot. So he was kind of pushed away from that by kind of Democratic elites, I think, maybe in a way that didn't actually help him, although Joe Biden's a very different opponent than Hillary Clinton. Trump campaigned on, in some sense, in 2016, cultural conservatism on certain issues, immigration, certainly maybe dispensing some of the LGBT stuff that had defined kind of Bush-era conservatism. But, you know, certainly 
culturally conservative, even reactionary in some ways. But he was kind of against the Iraq war, at least the 2016 version of Trump, not the original version of Trump. He was pro-welfare state to some degree. Then he gets in office and Mitch McConnell and everyone are like, oh, this is great. We got a GOP control of Congress and the presidency, so let's pass a bunch of conservative economic policies. And Trump can say, well, I'm for business, and that was always made clear. And so, but he also got pushed in a more kind of conservative economic direction by kind of being the standard bearer of the GOP and wanting to get along, I guess, with congressional Republicans. That's interesting. So you kind of blame it on elites, why these idiosyncratic viewpoints get consolidated into ideological left and ideological right. As an elite myself, I think I'm pretty self-aware that my views are not actually secretly deeply popular with the American public as a whole, but that elites kind of wield a lot of influence over the parties themselves and even over even over candidates as unique, shall we say, as Donald Trump or Bernie Sanders, even they face some degree of party pressure to be viable in party primaries and then to ultimately try to govern in Trump's case. One thing that I think is important is, you know, we talked about that Acela corridor party, which when we were doing this sort of experiment and understanding where people would fall in a multi-party America, we were trying to think about, you know, many of the European multi-party democracies where you've got kind of a far-right anti-immigration party. You've maybe got something that looks more like your Christian Democrats or your Tory party in the UK. You know, they're pro-market, somewhat socially conservative, strong on defense, that kind of thing. And then the Acela, we sort of put Mike Bloomberg's face on our slide. We didn't use him as an example overtly in the question, but it's kind of this socially liberal, fiscally responsible type message. And why I was always out on, like I was never buying shares of Bloomberg Mentum is because that's just such an enormously, not just a small slice of the electorate, but a super small piece of the Democratic Party. Only about one in six Democrats including independents who lean more Democrat, only 16% would identify themselves along those lines. I mean, the center of gravity in the Democratic Party is that more traditional labor party group. And something that I think is a challenge for Republicans is that while Democratic activists, I think, are much more progressive than kind of the median Democrat, the incentives on the Republican side, I mean, that nationalist party, that further right party, is 44% of the GOP compared to only 32% or that more kind of conventional, maybe Bush era conservative. So the center of gravity on the right is with that further right nationalist group, where on the Democratic side, for all the sort of attention that the AOC, Bernie Sanders group might get, it's that Joe Biden, more conventional kind of labor party model that really has the center of gravity of the Democratic Party. Yeah, I just want to spell out for listeners the five different parties that you mentioned. So it's the Nationalist Party, which is you have Trump representing. You have the Conservative Party, which you have former Vice President Mike Pence representing. You have the Acela Party, which is Mike Bloomberg. Then you have the Labor Party with Joe Biden as the representative and the Green Party as AOC being the representative. So five different parties in this theoretical American multi-party democracy what would be potentially, in theory, the advantage of having something like that, a five-party democracy instead of a two-party democracy? Are there any advantages? 
Well, I think in countries that have these kinds of systems, I mean, the advantage is when you go to vote, there are more options that might more closely align with your idiosyncratic views. On the other hand, they still ultimately wind up having to form coalitions of the government and the opposition where their compromises have to get made. So I would defer to some of the other folks on this episode who probably studied this closer than I have. But on the one hand, it gives voters a better opportunity to cast their ballot for you know, they have more options on the menu, but I don't know that it means that the results would be dramatically different. Studies have shown that it helps with polarization because as you're getting at, there have to be coalitions. So there's less of that zero sum strategy where you want to vilify the other side because turns out you need to work with another party once you're in the governing responsibilities. And you sometimes get those interesting coalitions where like the conservatives need to get the Greens exactly. into their coalition in order to form a government. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, that was one aspect I think of your study that really excited me is this sense of like, right, when you map people onto five different parties, there's more nuance. You could see different coalitions coalitions form. I think it also would help with some of the urban-rural split you see, particularly in the U.S., and how that, you know, now increasingly urban Democrat, rural Republican, in multi-party proportional democracies, there's just less of that divide because those coalitions still have to exist. So I think this could shake up our politics in an interesting way. In that five-party characterization, the Acela group are probably the pivot point on many issues. And so, like, it would give it elites more power, <laughs> I think, ironically. Um, although also keep in mind that like incentives change and parties reconfigure when the system changes. So maybe you don't end up with five parties, maybe you end up with more or fewer potentially. Yeah, it might empower like the Greens have a more credible threat or I don't know exactly, but it would make things interesting for sure. You've now asked this multi-party question a couple times and the most recent time you asked it before June of 2021 was in October of 2020, you know, right before the election. And we saw that actually the conservative party, which is defined as defend the American system of free enterprise, promote traditional family values, and ensure a strong military, that actually got more support than the nationalist party, which is defined as stop illegal immigration, put America first, stand up to political correctness, and end unfair trade deals. But now we've seen a shift. So today, 24% of respondents aligned with that nationalist party, whereas in October 2020, it was 16%. Have we seen a shift over the past eight months within the Republican Party? Why might we have seen that? So there are two things going on here. One is a methodological thing that's important to point out, which is, as most pollsters do, as we approach Election Day, we switch our frame of reference from registered voters to likely voters, or in our case, we call it likely electorate. So some of the difference between October and June could be explained by the fact that those more traditional conservatives are your more likely voters, that within the party, there may be more nationalist folks, but they're more loosely attached to sort of traditional political activity. Again, part of how Donald Trump, when he brought a bunch of new people into the process, these are the types of folks he was bringing in, these sort of more detached, but kind of more nationalist folks. However, we also asked this back in October of 2019, so before the pandemic, and it's with that same frame of reference that we used in our most recent survey, just looking at registered voters. And even when you look at it along those lines, there is still that slightly growing nationalist piece of the party. You know, back in 2019, it was split pretty evenly, 38% of Republicans being traditional conservative, 37% being nationalist. 
when you fast forward to now, the nationalists have a 12-point advantage over the conservatives kind of within the party. Now, there's still a lot of folks that are unsure. I'd really love to meet the 3% of Republicans who tell us they would be in a green party. You know, that'd be a fascinating focus group to do. But nevertheless, I do think that you can't explain all of this change just by the change in sample frame from registered voters to likely electorate. Something really is going on here that either has driven some of these more traditional conservatives out of the party entirely over the last two years, or just that views of individuals themselves have changed to become a little more perhaps hardline on an issue like immigration, crime, et cetera, the things that might make them gravitate more to a further right party. And also, I think, as you were saying earlier, Kristen, we've just seen less of an emphasis on talking about the deficit among Republicans. We're seeing more of this push towards economically liberal positioning. The other thing I would add there in terms of the shift is studies have started to, and again, this was among elites, but asking, you know, how do you think of being conservative? And they were identifying that as proximity to Trump, not actual voting records. I mean, that's one reason why Cheney, in terms of not saying that the election was stolen from Trump, lost allies in Congress. And that became the new litmus test, not her actual voting record, which was very conservative, what you would associate with the Republican Party traditionally. That just seems to increasingly have fallen out of fashion and change. I think that's another reason why this axis is so interesting versus like ideology, because, you know, a voter will say they're conservative because, yeah, the other options, liberal or moderate. But what does it mean to be conservative? I remember this being a really interesting debate within the party, I think back in the 2012 primary, because that was the year where you had John Huntsman running. And I recall somebody writing a really interesting piece that said, like, look, his record as governor of Utah was really conservative on paper, but his sort of ethos as being, you know, finger waggy at his own party and like positioning himself as this moderate that actually conservatism was no longer about ideology or someone's record, but about their posture and their way of expressing themselves. And I think there's a clear through line in that to today, where in my surveys, the number one thing Republican voters are looking for is someone who will fight, that that more than sort of any individual policy position is the most important signal you can send that you are the person they're looking for. I do wonder if the political correctness stuff has increased support for the Nationalist Party, as as you guys are describing it, because there has been more of an emphasis now on cancel culture. I mean, there are all these terms yeah. people debate, woke culture, critical race theory. People use these terms incorrectly. Sometimes the term political correctness still gets used. But like that seems to be like a very 2021 emphasis that wasn't debated quite as much, I don't think, previously. It wouldn't surprise me if that's a big piece of it. Again, if what we're seeing Republicans care most about is someone who's going to fight the left, you know, whatever that looks like, that's the sort of thing where if you're seeing concern around whether it's lack of support for the police is something that we see in our surveys as a really high priority for Republicans, that if, if those sorts of things are kind of wrapped up in that phrase, stand up to political correctness, I can see that being a big draw and a difference between now and, say, October of 2019 when we first asked this question. Right. And I think the other thing, you know, is some of the traditional conservative values like gay marriage, like that's just something that was in Gallup this year for the first time the majority of Republicans supported it. It is something that I think the conservative religious right in particular has just lost on. And so I think you see part of that pivot then to some of the Nationalist Party like rhetoric around cancel culture and political correctness. All right. Well, let's move on and talk about foreign policy. But first, 
Today's podcast is brought to you by Shopify. Ready to make the smartest choice for your business? Say hello to Shopify, the global commerce platform that makes selling a breeze. Whether you're starting your online shop, opening your first physical store, or hitting a million orders, Shopify is your growth partner. Sell everywhere with Shopify's all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system. Turn browsers into buyers with Shopify's best converting checkout, 36% better than other platforms. Effortlessly sell more with Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Did you know Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. and supports global brands like Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen. Join millions of successful entrepreneurs across 175 countries backed by Shopify's extensive support and help resources. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Start your success story today. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash 538. That's the numbers, not the letters. Shopify.com slash 538. Six months into his administration, President Biden is having to stake out positions on U.S. involvement abroad. Earlier this month, he withdrew nearly all U.S. troops from Afghanistan, effectively ending a two-decade-long war as the Taliban gains territory. In Haiti, after President Jovenel Moise was assassinated in his home, some officials there are looking to the U.S. for assistance. Biden has said the U.S. has no plans to send troops. And anti-government protests have broken out in Cuba, with Biden saying that, quote, we stand with the Cuban people and their clarion call for freedom and relief from the tragic grip of the pandemic and from the decades of repression and economic suffering to which they have been subjected by Cuba's authoritarian regime. So I just first want to say that these conflicts abroad can be difficult and tragic, particularly for the people involved in those nations. As listeners know, we generally look at things on this podcast in terms of how they shape American domestic politics and public opinion. And so with that in mind, that's how we're going to kind of address these questions, although there are obviously other facets to that. So from the foreign policy decisions we have seen Biden make so far in his administration, is it clear what his foreign policy worldview is? I think his foreign policy worldview is informed, I would assume, by his time in the Obama administration, kind of disagreeing with President Obama on certain things like wanting to withdraw troops from Afghanistan back then and instead getting kind of that Afghanistan surge. So I think he's very much of the mind that he wants to be able to pull troops back and focus in at home. Now, whether he'll be able to do that if... For instance, as we withdraw completely from Afghanistan, as the Taliban approach Kabul, if the images coming out are horrifying, you know, that could shape public opinion, certainly. But at the moment, I think in some ways, his foreign policy worldview, his actions shouldn't necessarily be a surprise given sort of the signals that he had sent even during the Obama administration about where he had disagreed with Obama. I think it's really hard to characterize at this point his viewpoint, because while he's done things where it's like, okay, remove the troops from Afghanistan, you know, he hasn't really broken new ground in terms of America's stance with Israel-Palestine versus that becoming increasingly a salient issue among Democrats. He didn't really condemn what happened in the killing of Jamal Khashoggi with the 
Saudi Arabia family once it was very clear that they had been involved in that because of political interests within Saudi Arabia. I think, though, as Kristen said, given the pandemic, you know, he campaigned on focusing on domestic issues. We saw this on full display with G7. He's rebuilding America's relationship with our allies, and that's very important to him. But I don't know if that means, oh, I'm going to have more of a presence on the world stage, which is why I think you're seeing some of the reluctance to intervene in Haiti, some of the cautious posturing around what's happening in Cuba. So there's a lot to dig into here. And the most recent, most obvious international events that the U.S. is being involved in or asked if it wants to be involved in, like Afghanistan, Cuba, and Haiti, that's only one set of issues. There's also dealing with adversaries or competitors like Russia and China or Iran and North Korea, trade deals and things like that. So there are many different facets of foreign policy. That cluster of three that we talked about, Afghanistan, Cuba, Haiti, are these the kinds of involvements that shape domestic views today? I think back on how foreign policy used to shape views of presidents, like, of course, in 1991, when then President George H.W. Bush beat back Saddam Hussein out of Kuwait. He had the second highest popularity rating in Gallup's history at 89%. There kind of was this view that American projecting strength abroad was something that you wanted to see in an American president. And there was just a broad consensus view that that is what people liked and approved of. Is that no longer the case in the United States? I think the wars in Afghanistan and in Iraq changed Americans' views to become much more skeptical of what we gain from projecting American strength abroad, especially militarily, versus what we lose. And remember, the war in Iraq was sort of public opinion soured on that much more quickly, but but Afghanistan was was kind of, I think, especially during the Obama administration, viewed as the good war, right? Okay, well, clearly we were going in after 9-11 to counter terrorism, to make sure that there was not a safe haven for threats to grow against the United States. And so people, I think, gave presidents a longer leash when it came to keeping a presence in Afghanistan. But public opinion soured, and even a large number of Republicans wound up questioning whether it was worth it at all. And so now the idea of sending American troops abroad, it can't just be, well, because it would be a good thing to do to support American values, to support democracy, to protect human rights. I think there's a much more skeptical view in the public of sending the American military abroad to do that. There has to be a clear and compelling interest to Americans themselves. I think foreign policy elites who sort of intuitively go, oh, well, of course it's in our interest to send troops to do X, Y, and Z, have failed to do a good job of making that argument to the American people. I think you see it in the data. And I think that's why someone like Biden, I think, has the political ability to say, no, I don't want to send troops to Haiti. No, I don't want to keep troops in Afghanistan. I understand that there will be consequences to that, but this is what I believe. And it's also where I think there's a sizable piece of the American public. Pew's been asking this question since at least 2004. And while there's a pretty big partisan divide on the question of how active the U.S. should be globally, with Republicans far more likely to say no focus at home than Democrats, even among Democrats, you've seen a shift in recent years where less and less want to say like, yes, let's be on the world stage in which the way we are. And I I think, you know, with Afghanistan, you kind of see democracy building in another nation is hard and it's not guaranteed success. And what do we have at the end of 20 years? At this point, do views on foreign policy break down by party? Or is there a bipartisan consensus around anti-interventionist, more isolationist policies? 
I think both parties have moved in that direction. I still think that foreign policy is one of the areas where voters are the most likely to follow partisan or leadership cues. I mean, you saw that, for instance, in views of whether Russia is a threat or not. Prior to the 2016 election, it was Republicans who were most convinced that we were headed back into Cold War number two with Russia. And you had Democrats that thought that was silly. The Cold War called it wants its policy back. And then you get past the 2016 election and immediately that flips. Suddenly, Democrats view Russia as this massive challenge on the world stage. And Republicans start to think, well, maybe Russia's not as big of a problem. I don't think that's necessarily because policy toward Russia was having a deep effect on people's personal lives. I think it's because they were sort of following signals from elites and what they were seeing in in their own media sources to shape those views. I mean, I think views on issues like something like healthcare are much more personal. They're a little harder to move because they're rooted in something tangible. Someone experiences and interfaces with the healthcare system or with the education system or they pay their taxes. And so they know how they feel about those issues. I think with a little more of a concrete feeling then they know how they feel about the JCPOA. What should we be doing with Iran? Like some of that is kind of outsourced to elites that they trust. But I also think that one of the reasons why you're seeing this more anti-interventionist view become more popular, and especially I think this is a driver on the right, it goes back to what I said earlier about what Republicans are looking for. They want someone who's going to fight for them. So if you are fighting overseas for what is an unclear interest. You know, how is this in my personal interest? That's just disconnected with somebody who's saying, yep, I'm going to bring troops home because I'm fighting for you on the issues here that matter most. I think that's what's winning out a little bit on the Republican side. This could all, of course, change if, as the Taliban make gains in Afghanistan, as horrible images emerge from Kabul, if people perceive that Afghanistan is becoming a potential greater threat to the U.S. homeland, you could see that dynamic change. But I think at the moment, it's that sense of, well, you've got to fight for my interest. I don't know what my interests are in keeping troops in Afghanistan at the moment. So yes, we should bring them home, is what you're seeing in the public opinion today. Yeah. Foreign policy is a really hard thing for voters, as Christian was saying, to like know what the right stance is without partisan cues. I do think one exception to it is China. One thing we saw in the lead up to the 2020 election was both among Democrats and Republicans. There is a strong dislike of China. Some of that was in response to the coronavirus pandemic as it had originated there. But a lot of that had to do with the trade imbalance and what that has looked like in increasing years. And it's an issue where neither Trump nor Biden Biden was really perceived as a leader in terms of managing the relationship with China, but it is kind of one of the rare bipartisan issues in terms of seeing it as a common threat. Because as Kristen was saying, right, like Russia now is a lot more partisanly divided than it had been previously. There is still differences in terms of wanting more of a military approach versus more diplomacy among Democrats and Republicans. But it is interesting. I think Biden has shifted the focus. I want to withdraw troops, focus on what's at home. But he is also starting to play up, I think, what is happening in China. I mean, at this point, I'm not arguing that that would activate voters in a different way. But it is kind of an interesting, you know, is that something where Republicans give him a little credit? Is it something that goes too far? 
On China, you know, to the Pew data that you were mentioning, I think it's interesting when you ask to what extent we should limit China's power and influence, um, to what extent is that a top priority? Um, that's something that there's been a pretty sizable increase since 2018 in the percentage of Americans who say we should be limiting China's influence. The increase has been among both Republicans and Democrats, but it's been a much sharper increase among Republicans. In a way, when you ask, you know, on a feelings thermometer, are you cold or warm? toward China. The percentage you feel cold toward China has increased a lot for, I think, a variety of understandable reasons over the last three years. And you now see Democrats are where Republicans were three years ago in terms of feeling cold toward China. I think it's a potential risk for Biden because the other question that Pew asked is they, they said, do you have confidence in Joe Biden to handle a variety of foreign policy issues? And on things like improve our relationship with allies, Voters have a great deal of confidence. 67% say they are confident in his ability to improve our relationship with allies. Things like dealing with terrorism, international trade, making good decisions about the use of military force, he kind of gets the benefit of the doubt, about 60-40 on most of those questions. But on whether he can deal effectively with China, of the things Pew asks, that's where he gets the lowest rating where it's the most up for grabs, whether he's going to handle this issue correctly. Now, for Republicans, I think there's a lot of focus on being China hawks. I think that's going to be a big issue in the 2024 primary. Who's the toughest on China? And in terms of military power, 81% of Americans think that China's growing military power is a bad thing. But on China's growing economic strength, there's a lot more question about that. You know, 50% of Americans think it's a good thing that China's economy is growing. So when we talk about being tough on China, if we're talking about do we need to increase our ability to protect in the South China Sea or protect Taiwan, like you might get more interest in that. But in terms of like we should be economically boycotting or decoupling from China, I think there's less of an appetite for that among the public. Nate, how do you think about how foreign policy views shape public opinion and elections. Because looking at some of this polling, so an AP NORC poll from last year showed that only 12% of Americans were paying attention to the news of US troop withdrawal in Afghanistan. You see other polls showing that people aren't paying a lot of attention to foreign policy news. But at the same time, we have had elections where Barack Obama's calling card in 2008 was opposing the Iraq war, right? We've certainly, you know, if you go back far enough, and oftentimes we do here when we're thinking about elections at 538, you go back to the war in Vietnam, obviously had big implications for domestic policy and public opinion at home. When do things cross the threshold into, we're going to outsource this to elites and just take whatever position basically the leaders in our party take? Versus, no, actually, we care a lot about this, and it's going to shape our views of politicians and elections. I mean, when there are big wars or big terrorist attacks, it kind of seems like the obvious thing to me. Or like geopolitical rivalries that feel like they're existential threats or feel like they're complex about the way of life. Which is why, in all those dimensions, I mean, China is the one country that you think could become a major issue across multiple of those dimensions, right? Including, by the way, that concerns over whether COVID. 19 emerged from a lab in China or a hot button issue that will be debated, for example. But I guess I'm just kind of endorsing what the rest of the panel has said, where like voters typically don't care about foreign policy until, frankly, there are bodies piling up, whether of American soldiers or Americans that are killed by some type of attack, or there's some quest for world domination that kind of is fundamental to how people view the world. Okay. I have a question, though, because the way that the protests in Cuba are being covered is 
in such a way that it would actually impact American politics. Here's a Politico headline. Florida Dems to Biden, don't blow, quote, golden opportunity on Cuba. So is this just elites shaping the coverage that Politico does? Or is something like Cuba, maybe because it symbolizes a broader argument between the left spectrum in American politics, which is trending more towards taking socialist positions versus the right spectrum in American politics, which is very much campaigning against those in elections. Like, does Cuba matter? And how would that fit into this spectrum of things that Americans do and don't care about? Clearly, there are some foreign policy issues, Israel being the canonical one, Mm -hmm. that elites care a lot more about than regular voters. Cuba is an interesting one in that it's like probably some elites, but also a group of voters who happen to have disproportionate influence. If Cuban-Americans in Florida were to start voting Democratic instead of purplish red, then all of a sudden Florida's a tipping point state again or something, right? So that's like happens to be like an especially important issue, both to Cuban-Americans in Florida and I would guess probably to like Floridians in general. But I don't think the average person, if I go out and get a sandwich after this podcast in New York, is that concerned about Cuba unless they have Cuban-American heritage or maybe other Latin American heritage? Yeah, I definitely think what's happening in Cuba is almost like an intra-party fight in the sense that Democrats are acknowledging that, hey, look, South Florida, we didn't do so well in 2020. Part of that was because of Republican messaging around socialism. We need to come out against the dictatorship within Cuba and how that is impacting people's lives there. And others in the party, because they've embraced democratic socialism, which to be clear is very different than what is happening in Cuba. But because there's like socialism, the same word there, I think it puts the Democratic Party in this weird position of like, well, how forceful do we want to be in that? But like, that's specific, though, within Florida, not necessarily, as Nate was saying, having like broad national implications for how people think about the Democratic Party. I think one other thing to mention on this is consider everything that happened during the Trump administration around Venezuela. It's a situation where I think there was a lot of talk from the Trump administration about, hey, we stand with Guaido. But ultimately, I mean, that's still a situation that's unresolved, right? The United States did not like send in troops to back who we believe should be the president of Venezuela. I mean, that's still a sort of disputed, unresolved situation. And yet even just like the rhetoric about like we care about this issue and we support it, I would suspect sent a signal to Cuban-American voters, voters who who are concerned about socialism globally or communism globally, that, hey, we're on your side, even if it didn't mean like sending in troops or doing something very visible with American resources to support that position. So are you saying that foreign policy has also become a part of the culture wars? (laughs) Very much so. I mean, what isn't part of the culture wars? One thing, you know, we've talked a lot about how foreign policy, unless there's a war, isn't really an animating factor for voters. It's also true, though, that like as long as it does have like a clear partisan camp in which it falls into, it can be a little bit more salient. I am thinking of Israel in this example in the sense of like Republicans are very pro-Israel. Within Democrats, though, you know, there's more of a split now. And you've seen um, there's been some polls on Jewish Americans and kind of trying to gauge where they fall and a little bit of a shift. They're still overwhelmingly Democratic at large, but more of a shift towards Republicans because of the pro-Israel stance. How do issues like climate change or even COVID-19 or trade deals, for that matter, fit into this question of like what Americans think about foreign policy? Because those have a lot to do with domestic policy and, and people's experience of the economy or health or climate, et cetera, but also involve 
dealing with foreign countries. What do Americans think we should do there? Like, is it still relatively isolationist when it comes to questions of climate change, COVID-19, trade, or is there an appetite for engaging foreign countries? I think on an issue like trade, on the one hand, you know, there's very much public support for the idea of buy American supply chain resiliency so we can have things produced here at home. We don't have to be relying on other countries for things that are important to our national security. We need to be trying to create American jobs here. Like those are all the reason why you hear politicians say them all the time is because they're very popular. But at the same time, I think in terms of policy, if you were to advance policy that suddenly made everything people bought at Walmart much more expensive... I think you would begin to see some backlash against that. So it depends, I think, very much on there's rhetoric and then there's how things would affect people's personal lives. Similarly, I think, you know, climate change, you know, we talked about everything's part of the culture wars. I think right now an issue like climate change is in some ways it's, it's an identity issue for people. Like I am a good person because I believe doing something on climate change or it's important to me as an American to be able to drive, you know, my big SUV. Like these things are also rooted in how people's conception of themselves. So they're not just foreign policy or just economic issues. Like, I think these lines all really blur. And COVID-19 is a perfect example of that. I mean, it's an issue about our relationship with China. Do we trust them? What are they trying to do to project their power and influence around the world? How honest are they? It's an economic issue because obviously we had to shut down our economy for the last most of a year to try to deal with it in terms of lockdowns. And then also, you know, it's a healthcare issue. Suddenly China became a healthcare issue. So these lines between what is a foreign policy issue and what is not in some ways, I'm not sure how useful they are because so many of these issues blur across them. One thing Biden did is he loosened the patent protections on the vaccine, making it easier for other countries then, right, to develop their own vaccines and distribute that within their countries. That was a surprisingly polarizing political question at one point. I think this is less true maybe of trade, but for both his stance on vaccinations and how that's played with the U.S. trying to be a world leader on that front, and also then climate change and re-entering the global Paris Accords. I mean, I think that in some ways is kind of giving Democrats a little bit more diplomacy. I don't know at what point that's really appealing to maybe more isolationist Republican voters. And so in terms of like that form of foreign policy, I really don't know that that maps on for voters in any way in, in terms of what your beliefs already were on an issue. Yeah, I mean, wrapping up here, coming back to looking at the Biden administration in particular, we've said here that in many ways, elites can chart their own path and they themselves can shape public opinion by how they talk about certain issues. How is Biden relating to public opinion on foreign policy? Is he kind of just trying to do what's popular according to the polls? Does he have his own pet issues where he's trying to shape public opinion? And of course, this has only been six months, there will be more time for us to try to understand the Biden administration's foreign policy. What are we seeing so far? Well, Biden's job approval on foreign policy is only sort of slightly lower than his job approval overall. I'm just pulling up the real clear politics average. There actually aren't a ton of data points on this because this isn't a question that gets asked like, as frequently as his overall job approval. But generally, his job approval on average right now is like just a little over 50%, where if you look at his overall job approval, it's a bit higher. It's closer to 52 53%, depending on which poll you look at. But again, it's also, it's just not an issue that's being, I think, polled as aggressively. I think most people right now are deciding whether they support Joe Biden or not. To the extent there are people who have not already strongly made up their minds, that it's about how is he going to handle the economy and are we going to keep COVID under control? Those are the, I think, much bigger drivers. All right. Well, 
Let's move on and talk about what's happening in Congress this week. But first. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. People who disappear without a trace. Where is she? The most notorious murder cases in New York. Pure evil. And the most devious killers. There's a Hannibal Lecter feel to him. For chilling true crime stories, follow the True Crime NYC podcast wherever you listen. Senate Democrats unveiled a $3.5 trillion budget plan last week, including a number of Democratic social policy, health care, and climate change priorities, as well as tax increases. If the bill receives full Democratic support in both chambers, it can bypass the Republican filibuster through a reconciliation process. Of course, some of the policies right now included in that bill might not necessarily pass muster with the parliamentarian in terms of what can go through reconciliation, but we will get to that at a later date. At the same time, a bipartisan group of 10 senators is still working on a separate infrastructure bill that focuses on more, quote unquote, hard infrastructure, bridges and roads and things like that. Majority Leader Schumer is pushing to advance both pieces of legislation this week. So before we wrap up this podcast, I do kind of want to check in and see where our heads are at in terms of the likelihood of one or both of these pieces of legislation passing, because they're trying to do it on a pretty tight timeline at this point. So first off, let's ask about Democratic unity. Does it seem likely that Democrats will be unified enough to pass their three and a half trillion dollar budget plan through reconciliation and then get majority support in the House? I think it is, as you were getting at, Galen, like a tricky balance right now between the bipartisan agreement, which Schumer's given them a deadline of Wednesday, and there's already, you know, complaints about that's too tight, but he needs the CBO to score that. However, like if that suddenly falls apart, and right now it does look like there's not the 60 votes for it, that I think will throw into question like Manchin's support for the budget bill that will go through reconciliation. Same thing with cinema. Like they made a clear line that, hey, in order to pass this more ambitious, funding that's going to be Democrats only. I really want this bipartisan bill. And right now, you know, in trying to double track both bills at once, I think that has presented some logistical challenges. And it's not really clear if the bipartisan one is as much of a success as we thought it was like two weeks ago. I also have to wonder, I mean, part of why you convince Republicans to get on board with something is to try to say, hey, you participating makes this less bad. If we just do it alone, it's going to be a nightmare for you. So you want to be at the table making this better. But if they're told, well, no matter what you do, there's still going to be a nightmare coming because we're going to do this thing through reconciliation. We're still going to spend trillions and trillions of dollars. You in some ways take away the leverage that you have to get Republicans to come to the table. Like that's why I've been a little bit baffled by this strategy. I understand that it's important because you have to make assurances to the more progressive members that, like, look, this isn't the only thing we're doing. But if you're a Republican member at this point, what are you gaining by participating in the bipartisan pill that wouldn't be gained by, well, Democrats are just going to spend X trillion dollars anyways? I just think that strategically is a thing that has perplexed me the most about this. 
I agree. I haven't quite understood like why the dual track system. I mean, it seems as if it would be similar rhetoric around what we saw with the pandemic funding in the sense of like, okay, Republicans won't back hard infrastructure. And I imagine there'd be a lot of like leaning into that messaging. But in terms of then the incentive as a GOP lawmaker, like why move ahead with that if Democrats are going to cram through this hugely ambitious progressive piece of legislation alongside it? And it doesn't really matter what I do. That does seem to be creating some not unexpected challenges as a result. Well, from the Democratic perspective, don't they say like, okay, Manchin and Cinema, we have ticked your box. We made an effort to pass this bipartisan infrastructure bill. It didn't work. It fell apart. Now we're moving forward with reconciliation. We did what you wanted us to do by approaching the Republicans. And now we're just going to go it alone. And then they will include both hard infrastructure and their policy wish list. That's three and a half trillion in one bill or whatever. They'll kind of combine the two and then pass that. And then there will be more pressure on the moderates within the party, the Democratic Party, to pass whatever that unified bill is. I assume that's what their backup plan is and the rationale for doing the bipartisan thing and the reconciliation bill at the same time. I think that is right. I mean, I think it's a question, though, of Manchin does seem to have like a very specific view of how legislation is made. You know, I think when he writes the op-eds about bipartisanship, he means it. And so I don't know if they can really count on his vote if the other one does fail. I mean, I don't think he's if there's a legislator who's not afraid to make the rest of America unhappy, because to your point, like, you know, a lot of the infrastructure bills have been very popular with the American public. I think Manchin, though, is willing to take that stand. One thing that you're also seeing is Republicans becoming increasingly of the mind that the high level of government spending, like we're beginning to see this kind of thermostatic reaction, right? Where people are like, they're kind of okay with government spending, but then it gets too far and too much. And suddenly people start going, whoa, 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 I'm suddenly concerned about government spending again. And you see this a lot, you know, a survey I did last month, we asked people, to what extent do you believe rising prices is a big problem? It was almost eight in 10 Americans feel that things are getting more expensive. And then we asked them what they thought the drivers were. And the, the top thing people thought was driving this was increased government spending. So Republicans feel a little bit like, yeah, we know infrastructure is popular and therefore being in the way of infrastructure getting passed has that one liability. On the other hand, if alarm about government spending is rising and it's not just abstract, if people actually think it's affecting what they're paying at the pump, what they're paying when they go to a restaurant because cost of labor is going up or people can't, you know, if they think all of these things are related and that government has over he is, is boosting things too much with too much money coming from Washington. If Republicans feel like that backlash might be there, then there's less of a pressure for them to come to the table and pass something that would otherwise, you know, infrastructure on its own is pretty popular. How much of this comes down to public opinion? In theory, legislators could just do what they want for their district because they want hard infrastructure in their in their district. Are Republicans and Democrats looking at the polling on the different provisions in these bills to try to get a sense of whether or not to support them? Well, I think there are certain things like you hear a lot of Republicans griping about increasing the budget to the IRS because that's an absolute political slam dunk. I've never seen the IRS with like glowing favorables in a poll. So there are certain like really easy targets in this bill of things that are being pursued that Republicans go, well, I can go after that piece and I'll have a lot of Americans with me. And it's giving them cover to be opposed to something that I think in the abstract 
hey, building bridges and roads in my district, that would be pretty popular. But all the other stuff, it's giving them sort of easy things to poke holes in. I can't say that they're looking at the echelon poll from earlier that we discussed, but maybe they should. I hope they are. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and maybe they should in the sense of like, what we're looking at with these infrastructure bills is bread and butter Labor Party politics. And, you know, other than the conservative quadrant, that kind of appeal to every other section of America, right? So, I mean, I do think as we've seen with Biden and his presidency and what he campaigned on is he really does want to focus on like this economic populist message to some extent. And that's why I think these bills are popular. They could have some crossover appeal um, at the margins. Nate, I'm not going to let this segment end without you jumping in here. When Democrats originally clarified this two-track system, I asked you, and I think Sarah as well on the podcast, do you think it's going to work? And you said no. Do you have any more information now that makes you double down or revise on that previous feeling? I mean, one point I did make last time that I'd remind people of is members of Congress are supposed to be concerned about providing money to their districts and their states. And the thing about infrastructure bills that, generally speaking, more rural districts, more depopulated districts get proportionally higher resources for infrastructure. And therefore, that might make things easier to pass because it kind of caters to the intrinsic rural bias of, of the Senate. So, yeah, I mean, I think the literature still is that, like, people care about directly providing for their constituents, especially in kind of smaller, more rural states. But if the idea is that if Republicans don't come to the table, this is all still going to get passed. You know, the Democrats will try to just do all this through reconciliation anyways. You saw a lot of Republicans vote against stimulus payments during COVID. They voted against it, but they were more than happy in their district to be like, hey, you guys got these COVID payments, you know, so so there might be a disconnect there. Just because somebody votes against the big bill doesn't mean they won't be there cutting the ribbon at the new bridge. Wait, does that work, though? Because I know Democrats and Biden in particular have tried to call out Republican lawmakers who voted against the American Rescue Plan and then touted certain provisions in it within their own districts. To what extent are voters paying attention to see or to either like catch on to that Democratic message that like, hey, this person is being hypocritical versus like you see on the local news that someone's out of ribbon cutting and you don't really care beyond that? I mean, who wins in that kind of debate? It's a good question. I would say, I mean, the risk of that strategy is like, I say, look what happened in Georgia. You know, there are a million different things that happened in the Georgia special elections. But one of those arguably was that you had these negotiations over these stimulus payments that then Trump threw a wrench into them at exactly the wrong time that then suddenly meant instead of Republicans being able to say, hey, we voted for X, Y, and Z and we got this through, suddenly they didn't have that anymore. I mean, again, there were 15 different things going on in the Georgia specials, but arguably that's one of them. Earlier this year, Perry Bacon, now at the Washington Post, had a great piece on some of the different reasons on why Republicans might not fear like electoral backlash for not supporting the stimulus package. You know, I thought one really good point he made is like we have this idea that swing voters kind of vote for the party with the most popular issues. But again, as we were discussing at the outset, voters are all over the map on various issues. And there's not necessarily a reason to believe that, okay, if my senator voted for the COVID relief bill, I'm going to back them now. Or if they didn't, I'm not going to back them. I don't think it's such a neat like one-to-one. And also, if the deficit really does increase, where we're having a very different conversation around inflation and the economy later this year, early next, that could also shape voters' perceptions and maybe even, you know, backfire on Democrats for having tried to push bigger, expensive legislation. All right. As per usual, there are many different factors that we will have to continue tracking. But until we get more indicators, let's leave it there. Thank you, Kristen, Sarah, and Nate. 
Thank you. Thanks. My name is Galen Druk. Tony Chow is in the virtual control room. Claire Bidigari Curtis is on audio editing. And Emma Riley is our intern. You can get in touch by emailing us at podcasts at 538.com. You can also, of course, tweet at us with any questions or comments. If you're a fan of the show, leave us a rating or a review in the Apple Podcast Store or tell someone about us. Thanks for listening, and we will see you soon.